0: The Apostle Paul knew he was headed for trouble in Jerusalem. The Spirit had testified in every city that bonds and afflictions awaited him, and his friends had tried to talk him out of going, but he was convinced that God wanted him to go, so he went. But as soon as he arrived in Jerusalem, it became evident that things were not going to be pleasant. And the first clue was the cool reception he received upon arrival. We're in Acts 21, ready for verse 15 and following. And after these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Now the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. Now Luke says that the brethren received them gladly. And James and the elders glorified God when they heard of Paul's mission. It doesn't sound so bad. But let's look a little closer. Because this really doesn't seem to be a particularly warm reception. You now, Luke tells us some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied them the 65 miles to Jerusalem, and that they took Paul and his party to the home of Nason of uh, Cyprus, with whom they were to lodge. And He notes that Nason was a, a disciple of long-standing. Perhaps he was even one of the first converts to Christianity. We can't help but wonder, however, why Paul didn't stay with James or one of the elders. Now, that's who he came to visit and to whom he was going to give the offerings from the Gentile churches. You'd think they would be his hosts. Seems a little strange. Could it be that Paul was still just a little too controversial? That they still wanted to keep him at arm's length? You know, when he first went to Jerusalem after his conversion, only Barnabas, also from Cyprus, would receive him. Apparently the situation hadn't changed much. when Luke says... The brethren received him gladly. He was apparently talking about the members of Nason's household because he doesn't meet with James and the elders until the next day. And of that meeting, Luke merely says Paul greeted them. There's no mention of the fact that the elders greeted Paul and his party. There's no emotional scene of welcome, no outpouring of brotherly love, and that seems strange to me. Anyway, Paul greets them and immediately begins to relate one by one the things God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now surely they had heard of that. They knew what had been accomplished. You know, it's almost as if Paul is on the defensive here and feels the need to explain everything point by point. And when he gets done, they do glorify God for what's been accomplished. And Paul did give God the credit for what had been done. And obviously, we should glorify God for anything that's accomplished through our efforts. But I still think it's a little strange that there's no word of commendation for Paul. No pat on the back. No good job. Nothing. Not even a thank you for the offering from the Gentile churches. Nothing. Now, I would have felt just a little strange there. You know, I think we all need, and actually we all really do need, a a little stroking once in a while. It's good for us. We, we like a pat on the back, and I'm, I'm sure Paul would have appreciated it from James and the elders, but, but it wasn't done. They simply glorified God for what had been accomplished, and then got right to something that was bothering them. A concern that led them to make a most unusual request. Of Paul. Picking up in the middle of verse 20. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. And all will know that there's nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But, you know, concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Awkwardly and abruptly, the elders change the subject. They go from glorifying God to, you see, brother, they had a problem. And it was a big problem problem. There were thousands of Jewish Christians who were zealous for the law and were passionate about Jewish customs and traditions. They still went to the temple and even made sacrifices. Of course, they recognized that it was Christ's sacrifice that paid for their sins, but they still offered up animals to remind them of what Christ had done for them on the cross. And they still circumcised their children as a sign of belonging to God. Now, they had become Christians. They understood the role of the Messiah in their salvation, and they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but they were still very much Jewish. And they had heard that Paul taught Jewish Christians to forsake the law and their customs, to forsake Moses, to stop circumcising their children, and to give up their Jewish ways. Now, these things weren't true. At best, they were half-truths. Paul did teach that the law of Moses was fulfilled in Christ, and that no one could earn their salvation through the law. But he didn't tell them to throw out Moses and the law. He did teach that true circumcision was an act of the heart and that physical circumcision had no special merit any longer. But he never told Jewish parents not to circumcise their children. He even circumcised Timothy because he was half Jewish. He did teach that customs and traditions were matters of liberty, that one man could observe a particular day for the Lord and another not observe it, and both be honoring God. But he didn't say that Jewish believers had to give up their heritage. They could still be Jewish if they wanted to. But he made it clear that being a Jew was not what saved them. It no longer put them into a special relationship with God. In fact, he taught that in Christ, there was no difference, in God's eyes anyway, between Jew and Greek. The Jewish believers, however, especially in and around Jerusalem, had the idea that Paul was against everything Jewish. As a result, they didn't think highly of him or his ministry. And James was certain they would hear that Paul had come. Now, they wouldn't pose a physical threat to him. They wouldn't attack him. But Christians who disagree can sometimes be very ugly and even mean-spirited. So they proposed a way for Paul to publicly demonstrate his regard for the law and hopefully win their favor. It seems that within the circle of believers there, there were four men who were under a vow, most likely a Nazarite vow. They had let their hair grow and had vowed to abstain from wine and anything that might defile them for at least 30 days in gratitude for God's blessing or to seek His favor. Now, rather than a lifelong vow, such as the one Samson was born into, Nazarite vows in the first century were generally temporary. And whether these men had finished the time period of their vow and were in need of purification to bring it to a conclusion, or had somehow become defiled during the period of the vow, and were starting over, there's no way we know. But a period of purification and the shaving and burning of the hair would have been done in either instance. Now, if Paul were to be involved in their activities in the temple, he too would have to go through the purification rites. And covering the costs related to making a vow was considered an act of of special piety for a Jew. By doing so, Paul would demonstrate that he still had high regard for Jewish laws and customs. Now, the elders did make sure that Paul realized they weren't suggesting that Christians were expected to do such things. As they had previously decided and written, all that was asked of Gentile believers was that they abstain from meat offered to idols, from blood and food that had been been strangled, and from sexual sin. They did think it would be good if Paul submitted to a very Jewish practice and Paul agreed to do it. The next day, he took the men to the temple and made the arrangements. Now, some believe that Paul compromised his convictions By doing what they requested. That he should have refused to be put under bondage to the law. And that in doing so, he was sending mixed signals, at best, to Gentile Christians. We shouldn't read too much into this. Apparently, Paul felt such practices should be considered within the realm of liberty and saw nothing wrong with it. In fact, he may have actually put himself under a Nazarite vow while ministering in Corinth. What he was doing had nothing to do with salvation. It wasn't an essential of the faith. It was optional. An extra something he could add to his religious life if he chose to do so. Now, there are lots of things that fall into the area of optional expressions of faith and devotion. Some of them may be unwise and may open the door to activities that might lead to misunderstanding and prove to be divisive. But if they don't go against what God has explicitly told us to do or not to do, they should be regarded as matters of opinion. Today, they may include things such as the raising of hands in worship, following a liturgy, fasting, the frequency of the Lord's Supper, special celebrations and observances, type of music, and even style of dress. Now, as was noted this week in the press, some activities may be very unwise, and in fact may be fatal. You know, I don't think we want to move into liberty when it comes to handling snakes in church. But these things are matters of liberty. They're not tests. Of fellowship. And by that I mean they're not something that you say, well, if you do that, you can't worship here, or if you don't do that, you're not welcome here. They're not tests of fellowship, they're matters of liberty. And Paul was merely accommodating his Jewish brethren by joining them in a particularly Jewish custom. He didn't have to do it. And he was restricting his freedom in doing so, but he was willing to do it for the sake of his brothers. In fact, Paul was willing to become a slave to the law. The man who spoke of grace and freedom in Christ, he was willing to become a slave to the law for the sake of his brothers. He told us so. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker in it. Paul was willing to put himself under bondage to the law to win those under the law. And he was willing to yield his rights to keep from offending his brothers. He would even give up eating meat, he said, if it were a stumbling block to others. He was willing to give up things. He didn't have to give up. And he did it for the sake of his brothers. It's For some reason, it's become very in, very vogue today for preachers in particular to uh, break free from what are sometimes considered the restraints of legalism. I don't know how many times I, I read books about young preachers who who like to use profanity now, or or, or they they want to drink and make sure everybody knows they have a few beers with their pizza, like you know this is something really great to brag about. It's it is in the realm of liberty, and if we insist that someone abide by our rules and regulations, that is legalism sometimes the most loving thing to do for the sake of the gospel is to put ourselves under the bondage of the law and refrain from doing things we have a right to do. So we won't offend our brother or lead him astray. Paul was willing to do that. And I think that says something about his heart, about his priorities. The gospel came first. His personal rights and preferences took back seat. He was willing to do as requested for the sake of his Jewish brethren. And he may have appeased the Jewish Christians by doing so. It may have worked. It may have helped. But what he did did not appease the Jews from Asia Minor. In fact... What he did may have gotten him into more trouble. Trouble that led to a dramatic rescue. Verses 27 through 36. And when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid! This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. Besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesians, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all the city was aroused, and people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound in two chains and began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowds, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could find could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he got to the stairs, it so happened that he was carried by the soldiers Because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following behind, crying out, Away with him! While appeasing his Jewish brothers, Paul ran afoul the Jews from Asia. They knew how effective he had been converting Jews throughout Asia Minor and were no doubt threatened by his presence in the temple. And when they saw him, they cried out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And then, to make sure they got the crowd's attention, they falsely accused him of taking a Gentile into the temple. Trophimus had been seen with him in the city, and they assumed he had come with Paul into the temple. But Paul would never have done that. The penalty for taking a Gentile into the temple was death. Gentiles could go into the court of Gentiles, but not into the temple proper. Barricades and and signs made it very clear that to do so would result in death. And Rome allowed it. But the accusation worked. A mob rushed together. They dragged Paul out of the temple proper and proceeded to beat him, intending to kill him. Now, Rome did allow executions for religious offenses, but not mob action. So when word got to the commander of the Roman cohort stationed in the castle of Antonia, Located at the northwest corner of the temple grounds, soldiers ran down the stairs and rescued Paul by arresting him. They bound him in chains and then asked what he had done. No one really knew, but they wanted to kill him. The mob was so violent that the soldiers lifted him up over their heads and carried him up the stairs to the barracks. All the while, people were shouting, away with him, away with him. This was the beginning of the bonds and afflictions that had been prophesied. Afflictions that actually began with his cool reception by the elders, and bonds that began when he willingly subjected himself to the bonds Of the law. Now he was in literal chains for the Lord. But it didn't come as a surprise to him. In fact, he had willingly and knowingly walked into those bonds and afflictions for the sake of the gospel. He had a message to proclaim, he had a mission to proclaim. To fulfill, and nothing could stop him, not even the risk of death at the hands of violent men. Nothing could stop him from doing what he was convinced God wanted him to do. What would we have done in similar circumstances? Do we share Paul's resolve to be of service to the Lord? What liberties are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? What personal preferences are you willing to forego to make worship more meaningful for others? How far will you go to keep from offending a brother or causing him to stumble? would you knowingly walk into bonds and afflictions for the cause of Christ? If Jesus is truly Lord, the answer must be yes. If we would be of service to Christ, we must have the same resolve that Paul had. I resolved to enter the kingdom and be of service to the king? If you are, let it be known. Let's stand.